Hello, everybody. Welcome to Sunday today's Sunday read. Hope everybody's having a great weekend. I know I am. Let me get this up here. Okay. Give everybody about five minutes to get in. And uh wow, I just had like this startling revelation. And no, it's nothing paranormal or anything like that. Glasses again today, no contact, so I have to be able to read. Anyway, that's not the startling revelation. My sister last weekend. Easter, right? Gave me this big Easter basket of chocolate. And if you've been following the show, I have been eating this chocolate like all week, you know, before the show to give me kind of a, a roll to get on here. I got my shirt on today, too. Anyway, um, so there's this big egg. And I thought, okay, before this show, I'll just open this egg up. And uh, I'll have to show you this in a second here. I'll just eat this chocolate egg, you know, to get going for the show and all that. So I did. As I was carrying it in here, I noticed it was kind of uh, soft. And I thought, well, okay, maybe it's just the chocolate's just kind of melted because, you know, I don't have any AC. So maybe that, you know, maybe it's melted. So I, um, I'm going to tease the show to somebody right now, too. So I decided to eat this egg. So I take a bite and I can, you know, I, I kind of feel soft. And, you know, it's like, it's, it's like with the C's candy thing, you know, you walk around, you poke them to see what's in them. So I, 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 uh, I snapped off the top of it and I thought, wow, there's something inside the egg. This is the most clever thing I've seen. And I don't know, maybe because I'm old now. I'm going to save this because this is really cool. There was an actual chicken peep in this egg. I don't know if you, how, how good you can see the chicken peep. Just a little chicken peep. But they had it in this chocolate Easter egg, which was kind of cool. You know, I've never seen anything like that before. Of course, I'm out of touch with candies and stuff, but. This was really cool. I'm going to save this peep. I'm going to put it in the fridge and save it. But I've never had a chocolate Easter egg like that with a with a literal peep inside. And this is cool. It's really cute. So I'm going to wrap this up and save it. Thank you, Debbie, my sister. That, that was really cool. I did not expect that. So let me wrap up my peep because I want to save it. But uh, yeah, and I thought, gee, I wonder why this thing's so soft, right? So like I said, like, you know, everybody knows the sees candy when you're younger and you're a kid, right? You you want to know what's inside so you start poking at it. <laughs> and essentially, I didn't poke at it, but I, I you know, I, um, nothing ever wraps like it's supposed to. Imagine this was around a large egg. I can't get it around the peep. Um, of course, I, of course, I didn't poke at it, but I, you know, I, uh, I kind of broke open a spot and, you know, but I've never had a, East, a chocolate Easter egg that had a, I literally had a peep inside. That, that was cool. So I'm going to save the peep. Let me get this thing turned on. And I got to tease the show to somebody really quick. I forgot to. So let me do that. We're giving people time to get in here anyway. So let me send this bad boy off to somebody. I won't whistle. It'll scare you guys. Oh, wow. There I am. I even have the sound on. I can hear myself talk. Don't do that. Turn your sound off. Two things to remember. Um. Share. There we go. Hello. Uh, not like that. That's not how I want to share. Copy link. I'll just do that. Um, <laughs> always turn your sound on. Your sound on your phone. Turn your sound off on your computer. There. There we go. Turn your sound off on your computer. I always remember watching Frasier, and he would always be on people's cases about that. And I had a guest on the other night that she had her computer speakers on. And she was, you know, she was listening to me talk to her, but there was this huge delay. It was 
it was awkward and trying to take some water and trying to time it was really awkward. But like even me just now, I forgot the volume was up on my phone and here I'm trying to tease this thing over and, you know, sure enough, I could hear my lovely voice on the way. Okay, let me get this power this thing up. If anybody has a new tablet they want to give me, that would be great. Um, <laughs> I've got a Samsung, <laughs> Samsung Galaxy Note 8.0 that's so old I can't even update it. So I'm looking for a new tablet. At least a, at least an 8 to 10 inch tablet. And I have to have the S Pen. Okay? Because I, when we go paranormal investigating, I have all my forms on the tablet so the clients sign directly into the tablet. So I get have an electronic record of it. See, I got my S Pen right here. But this thing is really old. It has SIM card issues, you name it. All right. So, welcome everybody. So it says it's at 100%. So we're going to disconnect. Make my life easier. Okay. I want to welcome everybody to Sunday Reading Day. Boy, did we get a heck of a read last week. We went two hours. I don't think I'm going to go that long today. But, uh, Got so into the story and what happened to this couple that I couldn't stop. I didn't want to you know, I didn't want to get everybody in the middle of this thing and then and then stop at that point. So I just kept going and going like the Energizer Bunny last week. But uh, our couple has been abducted. Well, they think they've been abducted out there, and they had spent 24 hours or all night long. They've been harassed by what what, what appear to be aliens. Three or four different types of aliens too, which was kind of unique. So now it's now to set the set the mood. It's morning now after after their alleged abduction, and we're going to continue with the story because it doesn't only stop at what happened at what happened. I mean, it just goes on and on. And this, I can honestly say, I've read a lot of books on abduction. This is the scariest one I've ever read. It honestly, is. So we will continue, and. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. I hope you like this book as much as I do. Beautiful day outside. I can see why we got two people live right now. <laughs> but I did a bunch of yard work yesterday, so my body, I woke up sore, I'll tell you. My body just wasn't feeling it today. 8 a.m., the desert sun. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's already starting out so well, isn't it? 8 a.m., the desert sun splashed into the camper shell from the windows and, tr and the truck's open tailgate. Somewhere, the distant sound of a single-engine prop plane could be discerned as it passed overhead. The first conventional sound the Giffords had heard in more than 12 hours. Tom stirred. The remembrances of the night before so vivid that even before his eyes opened, he bucked up in the bed as if awakening from a nightmare. Tired and feeling mentally blunted, he doused his face with bottled water. Elise awakened a few minutes later, feeling that same mixture of, of lassitude and anxiety. She sat up in bed, groggy. Her body lunged forward as she gasped, then caught herself at the morning's first recollection of what had transpired only hours before. Her panicked eyes shot to the windows reflexively. They're gone, Tom offered. No sign of them anywhere. The valley's empty. Not a cloud in the sky. Elise took a gradual account of herself and their situation. Thank God, she muttered. Still dressed in the jeans and work shirt she'd gone to sleep in. Tom left the camper. I'm sorry, he gone to sleep in. Tom left the camper to search the desert and surrounding wash for any physical evidence that may have been left behind. 
Elise shook herself from out of her stupor, then joined him, hopping out of the camper and into the cab, where she turned on the radio, then fished across the AMFM vans for news of what had happened. What day is it? she called out to Tom. He glanced first to his wrist, but his watch had stopped, then up to the sun. It's 8 a.m. or near to it, he answered on hands and knees as he scoured the area around the mesquite tree. And it must be it must be one day later this morning, you know, the morning after they left us. That's not what I mean, she yelled back, frustrated at her inability to find news of the event. I mean, how do we know what day it is or what year or decade for that matter? Everything's been turned around. For all we know, World War III might have happened, and we don't even know it. He approached the cab, wiping his hands clean on the sides of his jeans. Nothing. Not a thing. Camper's untouched. So far as I can tell, not a twig around it's been broken. Not a grain of sand moved. Nothing. He looked to her vexed. How about the radio? Elise turned the volume up on on WFLG, a local country station, for Randy Travis Croon digging up bones. Here for yourself, she said. No mention of anything even vaguely related to what happened, not even on the news channels. Tom grimaced. Move over. What? I said move over, he repeated. She did, watching as he jumped into the driver's seat and turned over the ignition. Where are we going? she asked literally. He took the truck up the rugged mountainside leading out of the valley. To find witnesses, he answered, racing the Ford pickup on one of the unnamed trails they traveled the night before. They drove six miles on Black Canyon Wash before coming upon another campsite. Tom parked hurriedly, then rushed out of the truck, slamming the door behind. Elise followed. <clears throat> now we're going to find out what the hell is going on around here, he abraded. They approached the first camper, a man who looked to be in his 60s, crouching over a campfire as he brewed a pot of coffee. Tom was about to ask what, what he'd seen in the sky the night before when suddenly the folly of the request struck him. What if he'd seen nothing? Judging by their appearance and the strangeness of his request, he'd be lucky if the man didn't contact the police once they left. His gait slowed. His self-assured bearing wavered as he reassessed his strategy. Morning, Tom greeted in a quiet, cautious voice. The man looked up from the campfire. What can I do for you? Tom and Elise moved nearer. Were you camping here last night? Tom casually inquired. Yep, the camper rejoined. Why do you ask? Tom stopped a few feet from him, Elise at his side. Did you notice anything peculiar in the sky? I mean, anything abnormal? The gray-haired man ruminated for a moment, then shook his head. No, but that wouldn't be so unusual. Not if it happened after 7.30, because that's what time the wife and me go to bed. He turned, then hollered over his shoulder. Ain't that right, Bobby? What's that? They heard a voice come back from behind the canvas tent. Then the second camper, a lively-looking senior, with her hair pulled back and into a bun, poked her head from out of the lean-to. Got a fill out his lady friend here. Want to know if we saw anything unusual in the sky around here last night. The man explained. <clears throat> Told him we turned in early. That's right, she affirmed. See, we come here for hunting. Early to bed, early to rise. We leave the stargaze of the young folks like you. The man chuckled from beside the campfire at his wife's forwardness as Tom and Elise turned to leave. Want some coffee? The woman called out after them. You two look like you could use some. No, uh, no thanks, Tom replied just before he and Elise got back into the truck. Tom started the engine. They didn't see a thing, he grumbled. Far from everybody and in the valley like we were, it wouldn't surprise me if no one saw anything. Thomas, Elise exclaimed, the nightmare remembrance of her young son's torture suddenly surfacing from her subconscious. 
There was no further explanation required. Tom knew exactly what she meant. You're right, he agreed. A sense of urgency coursing through him. Let's get to a payphone and make sure he's all right. Tom took the truck north up Black Canyon. Wash, back toward Wild Horse Canyon Road. His foot pressed down hard against the gas pedal, trying to make time when suddenly Elise felt him slam on the brakes. Elise's lithe frame whipped forward toward the windshield, then back to the passenger seat. She turned on Tom, about to complain, but stopped abruptly. Tom's hands were clamped around the steering wheel. His entire body was quaking as he sat rigid in his seat, a cold sweat oozing down the sides of his face. Tom, what is it? She looked at him, then over his shoulder beyond the roadside, where a triangle of lights hovered low above the mountaintop. They had escaped the valley near Tabletop Mountain. The torturous realization came to her, but the searcher had followed. Can you drive? He nodded. Then, let's get out of here. It can't follow us once we hit the highway. She feverishly reasoned, it can't follow us into L.A. Tom took a deep breath. He composed himself, then put the truck in gear, feeling once again the tingling, chilling sensation of the cold mist that had enveloped them earlier that morning and during the most devastating periods of the night. Do you feel it? he asked. It started in my legs, she confirmed, stomping her feet on the floor of the car, but now it's running all through my body. She looked at, she looked at him, frantic. Why is that, Tom? Why would they do something like that? Tom didn't respond, but gunned the engine. Bounding the truck east on Black Horse Canyon Road, the searcher still trailing alongside them. But for what reason, he wondered, Elise's question caroming wildly within the depths of his soul. To intimidate? To locate? To gather information? The two of them could only speculate, watching and praying for the nightmare to be over. Please, don't go fast, Elise cautioned. We're going to crash. We need to get to the interstate, he shot back impatiently. Who knows Who knows what the heck that thing can do for us, or do to us, she shivered. What about Thomas? When can we stop? I'm so frightened for him. It's got to leave us once we get into a more populated area. It can't do anything then. Elise's frenzied mind wondered what the aliens could and couldn't do, warily watching from the passenger window as the object followed alongside of them beyond Black Horse Canyon Road and on I-15, where at last she felt she could breathe again. The searcher had disappeared. Tom stopped at the next gas station where Elise called home. Good news, she reported upon returning to the car. They said it's been an uneventful weekend. Tom started the car, senses too deadened even to comprehend the irony of her words, much less react to them. He pulled back onto the highway, then spoke abruptly in a choppy mechanical cadence. We can't tell Wolfie and Carol. We can't tell anyone. They never understand. They just wouldn't. Well, it seems like we need to tell someone, she objected. We've got to report it. To who? The Air Force or the FBI? I don't know. Okay, he mitigated, eyes locked on the road. Let's think about it. But for now, until we get our own heads together, it's better to tell no one. Elise nodded her agreement, running the fingers of her left hand over the upper part of her neck near the jugular. She touched the area still sensitive where two tiny puncture wounds had appeared during the night, then turned to Tom. It's not over, she said without emotion. Do you know what it's like to want to protect your family every day, every night, and know that you can't even protect yourself? Because whether you see them or not, you can feel them, and, and it's like they live inside you, inside your brain, and they can do whatever they want, when they want, and there's not a darn thing you can do about it. Tom Gifford 
section, the Watchers. La Miranda, California. La Mirada, I'm sorry. October 22nd, 1989, 4.35 p.m. When Tom and Elise returned to their La Mirada home, the normalcy was jarring. Tom Jr. had spied them coming down Clear Spring so that he and Wolfie and Carol with Zoe, or Zoe, <coughs> Z-O-E, so I'm going to say Zoe, in her arms, were all waiting when they pulled into the driveway. Don't, didn't expect you to back so soon, Wolfie called to his son who was getting out of the truck, and I don't see no mule buck deer either. Nah, no luck, he conceded. Not this time, anyway. Tom Jr. ran to his mom. She embraced him like she'd never let go. I missed you so much, she gushed, impassioned. I missed you, let's see, I missed you too, Mommy. And how was Zoe? Elise asked hopefully. An angel, but you, said her mother-in-law, looking frightened. You look, have you been ill? Elise let go of Thomas and turned away. No, just a little tired, she fibbed, walking along, walking alongside Wolfie as they entered the house. It's my fault, really, Tom interjected. Mid-Hills was sold out, so we had to sleep roadside the first night, then set up camp near Tabletop the next. Sold out? Wolfie repeated incredulously. This time of year? That's hard to believe. Tell me about it, muttered Tom. Well, did you at least make it into Nevada? Elise, who was still fawning over Tom Jr., smiled miserably. Yeah, I played the slots, and Tom even won $70. Carol, the optimist, sipped from a cup of coffee that had been waiting on the console. So at least... It wasn't a total loss. No, at least we really agreed. It was fun. But if you don't mind, I think I'd better take a shower and go lie down. Carol, who was a trained nurse, walked toward her, placing the palm of her long, thin hand over Lisa's forehead. No fever. She turned to her son. What did you do to this poor girl? Tom shrugged. But they never did go hunting. Wolfie jibed. Probably spent the whole weekend dancing and whooping it up at the whiskey, at whiskey Pete's. Carol shepherded Elise through the narrow hallway into the master bedroom. Elise sat on the edge of the bed, then kicked off her Reeboks. She smiled weakly. I don't think I'm going to bother with the shower just now. Carol's expression was keen with concern. You and Tom? No, nothing like that. Just very, very tired. Carol watched as her daughter-in-law curled up beneath the covers. Elise was asleep before she turned to leave. <clears throat> Realizing that Elise wasn't feeling well, <coughs> excuse me, and Tom seemed exhausted, Carol and Wolfie said their goodbyes before lunch with baby Zoe napping and Tom Jr. in the playroom watching cartoons. Tom joined his young son. His six-foot-one, 225-pound frame eased comfortably into the recliner. At last, he put his feet up, his mind a muddle of fears and theories and emotions, while Tom Jr. laughed hysterically at the antics of, Bug of, the antics of, Bu of Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd on the TV screen. The contrast between the warm familiarity of the playroom and the calculated cruelty of all that he and Elise had gone through in the Mojave could not have been more stark. What was he to do now that the experience was over? Was it a man who had seen what he had to put these feelings away in some closet in the recesses of his mind and slip back into everyday existence as if nothing happened? If they had been chosen as the final being seemed to intimate, what was he to do? What was their mission? If they weren't part of some grander plan and all, and all of it had been a chance event, one that could never repeat itself and one that he and Elise could know, what kind of freaks had this strange and shocking experience left them? Tom's eyes fell upon his two-and-a-half-year-old son, hilarious, watching Elmer Fudd dressed in formal hunting attire, blasting away with a shotgun as he chased bugs 
through a cornfield. The sight of it set the memory of his vision loose like jagged slivers of glass coursing through the vessels of his brain. He remembered the rawness of his desperation while being hunted and the calculation, calculated deliberation of his stalker and wondered if he was not the same victim of, of prey to the creatures he had encountered. The experience left him questioning everything about humanity and religion, about himself. What a ridiculous man he was, Tom speculated. How petty everything seemed when compared to the magnitude of them, of them, the monster saviors. He had met and now believed had been visiting the East Mojave for generations. He pondered the future as Tom Jr. switched channels to Sesame Street, then a Bogart movie and the newlywed game. The reality of the, of the workload he'd left behind from the Norwalk State Hospital to the Metro Rail construction in Long Beach began seeping into his thoughts, and he wondered if he could do it, if he could bring himself to care about any of it again. Tom Jr. switched channels to ESPN, where the, where the Celtics played the, played the Knicks, then to John Wayne as a soldier in Fort Apache, holding momentarily on an ancient Twilight Zone rerun on a local station. Stop, he screamed. Tom Jr. held the channel, staring at his dad, Ollie, as Tom watched, totally absorbed by what he was seeing. Space aliens had landed in Washington, D.C., offering to serve man. Tom remembered. Strange, but the play on words, after all these years, seemed subtly amusing, since the story was about a cookbook used literally to serve man as a food source. Dad, Tom complained, just a little while longer, he asked, smiling, then laughing and finally bursting into tears. Rod Serling's aliens were tall with large craniums and distended arms, clearly of superior intelligence. They communicated telepathically, encouraging their human victims to eat hearty before feasting on them and feasting on them themselves. If you only knew, he muttered, eyes glistening with frustration, if you only knew. Dad? Tom's attention returned from the TV screen back to Tom Jr., who had been studying him throughout. Why are you crying? Tom invited him up onto his lap, unable to control the tears that now rolled down the sides of his face. I don't know, Tommy, he confessed. The truth is, I don't know why I'm crying. 12.30 a.m. Elsie's eyes were closed and her body still as she slept, but her mind journeyed back to the Mojave and places unnamed where, like Tom, she struggled to comprehend what had occurred and what it could all possibly mean. Their experiences in the camp were played over and over again in, the, in her mind. The meanness of the gremlins. The eliminated figure so cruel. The probe that threatened to destroy them. The comforter who offered them succor. What world did they come from? So foreign and strange. Were these the instruments of good or the gods of evil? Elise agonized, but there seemed no clear solution for the answer was both. True, this was not something either she or Tom had asked for. The sense of helplessness to which they had been subjected was worse than anything she could ever have imagined. Yet, to know that it all truly existed, <clears throat> that beings such as their comforter were real. What knowledge Elise marveled, what power to treasure in one's soul. Surely such insight was valuable and needed to be shared with others. But how? Where did it all fit? Still, one thing was certain. Elise had undergone a trauma that left her psychologically shattered. The part of her that reason knew this. The part of her that <laughs> the part of her that intuited understood it. Also, for all through the night. The images so long forgotten or suppressed 
rose like fetid cadavers from out of her subconscious. Images of her childhood attacker, of her fears about little Thomas' survival at birth, of these alien life forms that inflicted such pain. But there were other events half hidden that this night began <clears throat> emerging in Elisa's vocabulary of terror. Dark corridors and lighted ones, a pervasive sense of physical violation, and always that feeling, the, uh, the ubiquitous perception that someone was watching. Elise sprang up in her bed, heart pounding and eyes wide open. What have you done to me? She blurted, but no one was there, not even Tom. Elise peeked at the clock on the night table beside her. It was 3.30 a.m. She slid, she slid her feet into a pair of slippers beneath the bed, then crept down the hallway, careful not to wake the kids. In the kitchen, perusing a set of architectural drawings, was her husband wearing the burgundy bathroom she'd given him for Christmas. New hours, she asked gently. He laid the drawings down on the kitchen table. Can't sleep? Since two. She walked to the fridge. Warm some, warm some milk up for you? Nah, you know me. He, he abstained. Once I'm up this long, I might as well make a night of it. How about some coffee? Why not? Elise plugged two cups and saucers from the kitchen cabinet, then boiled some water. You had a nightmare, didn't you? He nodded grimly. Want to tell me about it? It's not a nightmare exactly, he explained. More like reliving the experience over and over in dreams. She poured the steaming water into his cup. How much do you remember? Tom's eyes raised from his cup, surprised. All of it. Why? What about when we were asleep? He goofed. Well, no, I wouldn't remember that. I was asleep. But they were still there. The monitors, the searcher, the eliminated figures, too. Yeah? Elise sat across from him at the table. So how do we know other things didn't happen while we were sleeping? I suppose they could have. Sure, Tom conceded. But we were in the camper the whole time. She took a gulp, a gulp of coffee. Her expression, cool and composed, seconds before, was anything but that by the time she put the cup down. But where was the camper? On the ground, near the wash. And the ground? I don't follow. My point is, I don't think we ever came down from the museum, Tom. Her chin quivered. We were on board the craft the whole time. And that's what my nightmares are about. Not the experience. The time after the experience when we were sleeping. Tom reached for her hand across the table. Elise. Anything's possible. My God. I hardly know who I am anymore, let alone the things that may or may not have happened to us out there. But you. What about your dreams? She persisted. The ones you had tonight. Tom searched his mind to retrieve them. Mostly about the visions. The ones in the camper. His eyes narrowed. But there's another I can't entirely explain what it's more of an image than a dream a feeling like walking through a kind of tunnel or passageway white like the light from the probe he nodded yes i had that same image tonight in my dreams tom took a sip of coffee then sighed isn't what we remember enough jesus elise it's not like we've got to go looking for things to worry about no she answered leaning toward him over the table but if something happened during, during that time that could help us understand, help explain what it all means. She looked to him, her green eyes wet with yearning. Tom, I swear, I think I'm going crazy. I worry. I worry so much that they're going to take our kids or that they've changed me, into some, changed me in some way or made me pregnant. You mean what happened toward the end of the camper? That and other things. What? I didn't say anything this morning. 
because I didn't think it was important, but now I don't know. What is it? Mark, she answered with lethal seriousness. Two red dots. There were scabs on them this morning. Tom stepped around the table to examine them. How could something like that have happened? Elise asked as he touched them. An insect bite, he shrugged. Nothing to worry about. Elise gazed down into her coffee cup. I'm not so sure, she answered softly. What do you think it could be? He asked, walking back around again. I don't know, but it scares me. The thought of them putting something inside my body scares me to death. Tom downed the last of his coffee. He plunked the cup down in front of him. Then you've got to see, see a doctor, he concluded. I mean it. You've got to put something like this to rest once and for all, or it will eat at you forever. She smiled across the table at him. I will. 3.45 p.m. Elise lay bedside. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's one of those days. Elise lay beside baby Zoe on the thick carpet of the flavoring floor. The Zoe-like rabbits, she cooed, brushing a stuffed animal over, over the infant's cheek. She smiled lovingly. Oh, she likes rabbits. Elise laughed, touching its soft coat against the skin of her face. Zoe loves, ra loves her rabbit. This was Elise's favorite time of day. With Tom at work and Tom Jr. at her mom's, the house was at last quiet and she could devote time to Zoe. Just the two of them. She rolled onto her back with Zoe on her stomach. Do you want to go for a ride, she sang to her. Baby, want to go for a ride? Elise snuggled up to the infant, staring deep into her eyes, then held her there for a prolonged moment. What? She wondered aloud, setting Zoe down on her feet, as she stood to make certain she heard it. she had it right. With windows and doors shut on a breezeless Southern California day, the curtains in the room were fluttering. And then, as she stood there in the center of the room, she felt it, a freezing cold wind running through her long chestnut hair. Elise made an involuntary circle around her baby, glaring as she examined the four corners of the playroom. I know you're here, she warned the invisible presence that, that had entered. I know because I can feel you here in the room with us. So listen to me now. You can do what you want to me and my husband, but leave our children alone. Chapter 2 of this section. La Mirada, California, October 25th, 1989. Tom came home from work on Wednesday evening to find Elise where she had been for the past two nights. In the study buried behind a stack of books concerning UFOs, extraterrestrials, and spiritualism. He walked over behind her chair, then pecked her on the cheek. What you reading? She held the book cover up in front of him. Intruders. It's about alien abductions, and there are others. She hastened to add, waving a free hand at the pile. I've even got my brother, Glenn, downloading information from UFO Net. UFO Net? Yeah, she chortled incredulously. It's a worldwide computer network. He nodded glumly, then, then, then shuffled to the door. How was work? She asked, looking up from her book for the first time. It's this metro rail, he groaned, undoing his tie. It's already weeks off schedule. He shook his head, and you know, after the past weekend, I can't say I really give a damn. The whole project, everything seems so insignificant, so pointless. Well, dinner won't be ready for a while yet. So why don't you wash up, take a shower? She winked. It'll make you feel better. That night... At the dinner table, Tom's attitude seemed to have turned 180 degrees. He was more sure of himself, even optimistic, as he served up portions of chicken and vegetables to Elise and Tom Jr. You know, I've been thinking a lot about what happened this weekend, he began, passing the plate. But it wasn't until just now that it came to me, a way of approaching all this that might help us both. Elise took the plate from him. Okay, what's your idea? 
He snared a chicken leg from out of the casserole dish. Fact is, I don't think either one of us is, is faring too well lately. Neither of us sleeps anymore. You're turning into some kind of UFO fanatic, and I can't do my job worth a damn. He placed the chicken leg on Tom Jr.'s plate. That's not us, Elise. It's not, it's not what we're about, and it's got to change. She was mincing the chicken on Tom Jr.'s plate as she spoke. Go on. Anyway, I believe you've got to face challenges straight up or you'll never overcome them. So I'm suggesting we do two things. He raised his fork from the table. <clears throat> the first is to go back to Tabletop Mountain to see it again, where it happened. And if we're lucky, maybe even why it happened. We've got to come to grips with what happened, Elise. Because one thing's for sure. We can't make it go away. It's, it's too much a part of us. We're two different people than who we were because of it. Tom tried to assess her reaction. There was none. And the other? You said there were two. The second is that we get this off our chest. We can't hold this inside forever. And so my second idea is that we tell Wolfie and Carol and John and Vivian everything that happened last weekend. Having finished serving Tom, having finished serving, Tom turned his attention to his own meal. Hell, they're our parents, right? If we can't trust them, who can we confide in? And, God knows, Elise, I feel like we both need someone to talk to about all this. Tom waited for a response. Finally, he asked, so what do you think? I think it's dangerous. Which one? Both, she retorted. I don't know how you feel about it, Tom, but I feel like we barely got out of there alive. So you run from it? Pretend it never happened. No. Her fair complexion reddened. I'm a grown woman with two children who depend on me, Tom. What if something happened? It wouldn't be just you or me. Think about them and their future. That's what I am thinking about, he insisted. Don't you think I see what's happening? Elisa's temper cooled as she contemplated the effect the experience was already having on her family. How ragged they both became, had become. And the second idea? He asked more calmly. What about that? Her attention turned to the plate on the table. She fidgeted with her potatoes. I'm not sure, she confessed. On the one hand, I'd like to be able to discuss it with someone, especially my parents. On the other hand, I don't want them to think less of me for it. She fumbled for the words. What I'm really trying to say is, I'm terrified they'll think we've gone crazy. Even if we are crazy, they're still our parents, he said reassuringly. You'll, you'll still be their daughter or daughter-in-law. I know, she agreed, taking a deep breath. But now, even now, with you here at home, Tom, I'm shaking like a leaf just talking about it. No, she said, shaking her head convinced. Not now. Not yet. I'm just not ready. Well, all I'm asking is that you think about it. Whatever we do, we need to do it together. He smiled wanly. Let's face it. We're each other's best friend. Without you, there'd be no one to share my feelings. Likewise, Elise admitted. Just one of the many fringe benefits of the experience, I guess. Tom took a gulp of milk. By the way, did you get to the doctor like you said you were going to? Yep, she answered, swallowing. All checked out this morning. Bonafide 100% healthy. Dr. Wallach couldn't really tell what caused the marks, but he said it was nothing to be concerned about. And the other? Hang on a second. And the other? Asked Tom between forkfuls. The problem with the bleeding? It's not so unusual to spot every so often, especially this soon after Zoe. Is that what the doctor told you? She nodded. So what causes that? To spot, I mean. Nerves, answered Elise, taking a sip of Coke from her glass. Just nerves. The topic of returning to Tabletop Mountain did not come up again that night nor the next. But then, 
peculiarly on Friday afternoon, Elise called Tom at his office to tell him she changed her mind and wanted to go. Afterward, she spoke with her brother Glenn, who agreed to babysit, and it was and it was decided they would leave for Tabletop Mountain early the next morning. Near Tabletop Mountain, ten thirty a.m. Moments before they departed, Elise put her last her last night's scribble note on the door of the kitchen table. It read, "On their kitchen table. I'm sorry, dear everyone. We feel we're being called back. God willing, we will return." Our love for our children and family cannot be expressed in more mortal words in, in, in mere mortal words. Tom and Elise Gifford, October twenty seventh, nineteen eighty nine. Elise was thinking back to those words she had written late last night, so somber and so true. It felt strange driving down Black Canyon Road in the Ford Camper exactly as they had done one week before, she reflected. But there was more to their return than curiosity or the hope of vindication. Originally reluctant to venture back, she, like her husband, had come to realize that until they found answers to the questions that plagued them, there would be no peace in their lives. Tom cast a concerned look at Elise as they passed Wild Horse Canyon Road and the, and, and the Mid-Hills. Campground. Silent for the better part of the trip, she was pensive and frightened. You okay? She nodded bravely. You're nervous, aren't you? A little, she answered. He used his foot off the gas pedal, slowing the truck as he got his bearings. Me too, he admitted but also a little excited. I know. I could tell the other night at the dinner table when you first mentioned it. Tom's eyes scanned the horizon. To the west lay the Providence Mountains. Due east stood Woods Mountains and the valley they'd returned to see. They were near, very near. Guess you know me pretty well, he remarked. Well, enough to understand that you thrive on competition and probably see today as some kind of challenge. Not me. They scare me, Tom, and I'm not ashamed to admit it. He took trek east on the Black Canyon, on the Black Canyon wash, beginning their trek down the side of the mountain. What makes you think I'm not scared? I am. I'm terrified, but there's got to be more to this than just surviving. Hell, there are all types, all types of crazies you read about who claim they've seen aliens. Just pick up the National Enquirer. But this really happened, and if there's a way to prove it, I intend to. Well, I don't know, moaned Elise. When we first started out this morning, I thought this was a good idea, to get to the bottom of this thing right here where it happened. Now I'm not so sure. Tom held the wheel steady as the camper lurched forward over a crater in the road. I'm sorry, baby. Is there something I can do? She guffawed. Just tell me I'm not going crazy. I guess, you know. That's what I feel like sometimes, that we've both gone stark raving mad together. That couldn't, that couldn't be what's happening, could it? He shook his head solemnly. I don't think so. You know, lately, I've come to believe they're in our house. She looked at him, head cocked to one side. I mean, doesn't that sound crazy? But I swear when I was in the playroom with Zoe the other day, a wind came into the house and I knew they were there. She clenched her fist. I just knew it. Tom steered the truck to the right on yet another unnamed trail. As their, as their trudge down into the valley continued. Why is that so crazy, he asked. If they can design and operate the kind of spacecraft we saw last week, who says they can't visit our home in La Mirada, California? He grimaced. No, I think they, whoever they are, can do just about anything that, that they set their mind to, and I think they've been doing it in the Mojave for a long time. Well, anyway, she said, beginning freshly, that's why I came. Not to prove anything to anybody else, but for me and our family to prove that it really did happen and that we haven't both gone insane. 
Maybe then things will get back to the way they were. Maybe then we'll be able to live our live with ourselves again. Their descent was almost complete, and as the truck plowed through the foothills toward the wash beneath Woods Mountain, Tom could understand why Indian tribes such as the Paiutes and Mojaves considered this ground sacred. Truly, it appeared otherworldly. Its stark, desolate terrain heightened by macabre volcanic formations that gave testimony to the violent turbulence that seethed beneath the surface. Moments later, the truck broke from the rocky crater-ridden trail through to the dry, it's really hot in here, desert lake bed that made up the valley. Here we go, Elise muttered ominously, as if they were about to board a roller coaster. Tom smiled weakly, joking or not. Something subtle but, but pervasive had changed the moment they entered, he realized. Like the victim of some terrible crime unable to face their attacker, even in a courtroom, there was something of that feeling here for him and Elise. He felt suddenly intimidated, even guilty. What was there that lurked so dark in his mind that caused him to feel this way? He wondered what what had they done to him. I'm going to pull the truck to the exact spot where, where we capped last week, he murmured. Elise simply nodded. The more traumatized of the two, her feelings, her feelings of awe and horror at returning ran even deeper and more acute. To her, this was anything but a challenge or contest of wills. Rather... She wanted to be rid of the experience, to exercise whatever demons tainted them with these feelings out of depression and remorse. Still, there was one thing she knew immediately upon entering the valley. Her memories, blisteringly real from the week before, were anything but fantasy. What she and Tom had experienced was as real as the granite mountain that enveloped them. Tom pulled the camper onto the belt of high ground near the base of, the wood, near the base of Woods Mountain. He turned off the ignition and then sat for, draw, for a drawn moment, a thousand impulses dancing like talons before him. Let's go, he said, turning to Elise, his expression solemnly determined. The two walked some 20 feet from the camper to the fire pit that Tom had dug the week before. Well, I guess we were here all right, he said in a matter-of-fact voice. Here is the fire pit we built. He pawed at the burnt mesquite that lay outside the circle of the rocks with the toe of his boot. And here are the burnt branches that flew from, from when I kicked the fire out. Yes, I remember, she recalled in hushed tones, when the little ones, the ones with the big, the ones with the red eyes, began landing all through the valley. Tom and Elise took several steps beyond the fire pit. Slowly, their eyes raised up and directly across the desert some 500 yards, there, towering like some stark and monolithic tribute to the stars and heavens above, stood Tabletop Mountain, its huge flat-top configuration jutting some 7,000 feet up from where the desert floor below. Elisa's body quaked involuntarily as she stared out across the desert basin. Here, spread before her, was a landscape she had observed, trapped like a caged animal, hour after hour during their ordeal. And at that moment, it all came back to her. The mothership, with its white lights flashing, capping the entire nighttime sky above, the gremlins mocking their horror at every stage of the, of, of the torture, the eliminated figures, their enormous dark eyes ripping into their brain like daggers, the searcher, relentless, as it, as it canvassed every inch of the valley. The sound of the drilling resonating, low and thunderous, from, the, from deep inside the ground beneath the camper. The burning sulfurous stench that permeated the air of the camper, so vile and smothering. Elise felt suddenly faint. Tom grabbed her from behind as she staggered backward, mouthing soundless words that he could not understand. She tried to catch her breath. She couldn't. 
what was happening. She worried as the visions she had experienced one week earlier came tumbling like boulders from beyond the recesses of her subconscious. Tom Jr., the birth, the operating table, the blood gushing from his chest, surrounded by these things. These things that, that were, what were they doing to him? How helpless he looked. And now the rape. Her attacker, he's coming towards her from a corridor filled with lights. She's lying on the ground, but it isn't the ground. And the rapist is not a man at all. No, Elise screeched, her body arching in Tom's arms as she clawed and scratched, attempting to fight him off. It's okay, it's okay, it's me, he, he said. Elise, it's me, Tom. She stared into his face. Oh, I'm so sorry, she blurted, drawing him near her. No, it's okay. You had a flashback. A series of them. I've been having them too. What were they about? What was in them? Still looking pale and faint, Elise let Tom help her toward the camper. Are you all right? I mean, are you feeling better? Yes, yes, now tell me, she insisted. What did you see in your flashbacks? Tom opened the passenger side door of the truck, aiding her in as she climbed into it. He was still contemplating a response as he reached for a Coke from the cooler, plucked, it, plucked off the tab, and handed it to her. I didn't really see anything, he began. I mean, they weren't visions like before. More like very powerful memories, recollections of things that happened last week. For instance, all of it, the spacecraft, the eliminated figures, but mostly the visions. Vivid recollections of what the first sighting as a kid, uh, vivid recollections of that first sighting as a kid, and the other, the one I told you about. No question those were the ones that came back strongest. Were there additional events you remember, she prodded? Anything different from what we saw that day? He blew a long breath from his lungs, straining to remember. Lights, but not like the ones that were flashing, he uttered suddenly. These are on runners, like in that tunnel we talked about before. Tom cocked his head back and then shut his eyes very tightly, struggling. What do you mean? I don't know what I mean, at least just struggling. Like in a wrestling match, he snapped abruptly. Honest, that's all I can remember. She nodded and she nodded, she nodded and understood. Here, how are you feeling? He asked. Let me get over there. Oh, I'm fine now. She dabbed at the beads of perspiration forming on her forehead. It's the heat and the memories. She shook her head and just the, the and just the sight of this godforsaken place. We won't be staying there. We won't be staying. There's no, you know, there is no evidence, he conceded. Nothing physical anyway. And that makes sense because I don't think they're physical beings. Not physical as we understand the word. He stepped away from the door, then slammed it shut. Let's get the hell out of here. He started walking toward the other side of the truck when Elise called out to him. Tom? He turned. What is it? We don't have to come back to find them. What are you talking about? They're not here, she started plainly. I know when they're watching. Upland, California, February 14th, 1990. 9.35 p.m. It wasn't until several months later that Tom and Elise decided to confide all that was happening to Elise's parents. The experience was wearing them down. For Tom, work had become unbearable. The sleepless nights and horrific nightmares continued. But just as impairing was a feeling of guilt and isolation, as though he had done something terrible and held some dark and shameful secret that could be shared with no one. His powers of concentration at work had diminished, and the man once described as Mr. Dependable in Southwest Construction now struggled with attendance and, and project follow-through. 
The weeks and months immediately following the experience had been even more devastating for Elise. She became reclusive, eschewing social contacts with friends and family for fear that they might discover what was happening. The dread she felt personally extended to the children, whose life outside the immediate family she vastly restricted, fearing that they might be injured or abducted by the creatures whom both she and Tom believed watched them regularly. With this sense of isolation and helplessness growing, the two decided this, this was time to share their experience. Elise's folks, John and Vivian, had been watching the children that day in Upland, and they'd been invited for dinner. So it seemed a simple matter to stay, to stay on for coffee and the discussion so they could, that they so desperately wanted. Tom was sitting at the dinner table with Elise's parents when she returned from the bedroom, where Tom Jr. and Zoe were sleeping. Elise joined Tom at the table. With coffee and dessert out of the way, Elise sat forward in her chair, then began uncomfortably. Tom and I wanted to talk to you about something very private, something we've told no one else about. No one. Elise's father, John, a strapping, soft-spoken man with short crop salt and pepper hair, sipped his coffee thoughtfully. Vivian, his blue-eyed wife, <clears throat> quietly waited. Yes, dear, you don't have to be concerned about confiding in us, she encouraged, no matter what it is. I know, Elise agreed. I've never had to be concerned about that, ever. Not even as a child. But Mom and Dad, something happened to Tom and me while we were in the Mojave, back in October, that's had a profound effect on our lives. She bit her lower lip as, as her chin quivered with emotion. I know this will sound impossible to you, but we had an experience with extraterrestrials. Elise's mom reached for her hand across the table. You mean, you saw a UFO, is that it? She shook her head. <clears throat> looking to her, then to her dad. There's a movie that came out not long ago called Communion. Do you know that one? Yes, yes, I think so, Vivian agreed, glancing to her husband, who sat back taking a long sip from his coffee. Well, that's something like what's been happening to us, to Tom and me. I say happening because I'm not sure it's over. Elisa's dad, a general reserve man by nature, deposited his cup down onto its saucer, then stared at both her and Tom quizzically. Are you trying to say that you two were abducted by extraterrestrials? He cocked his head to one side. Is this serious? Or are you two putting your mother and me on? There was a protracted silence during which he looked long and deep into his daughter's drawn countenance and mirthless green eyes. He had seen that look before. They hurt you, didn't they? He asked finally. She nodded woefully. It was horrible, she snarled, angry and hurt and crying now. They came down from the sky, hundreds of them, and held us in the back of the camper. They? The aliens? asked John. She nodded again, totally absorbed now in relating the details of their encounter. Patiently, and with true caring, they listened as Tom and Elise told them what had happened and the depth of the emotions they were feeling. By the time they had finished, it was nearly 1, 1 a.m., and each was anxious to hear a reaction. It was John who spoke up, sensing the need to, to comment and somehow try to assess what he told them. I believe that you believe this happened, he struggled. Now, I'm no scientist, but what you're telling me defies everything I know. Space aliens, angels, and gremlins. He shook his head helplessly. I love you more than anything, darling, but there's got to be some other explanation. Do you think we're lying? Tom asked bluntly. No, he answered, unhesitant. unhesitant. I don't. I think you and Elise are telling us everything, as you believe it happened. Isn't it possible you saw some experimental jets or rockets the Air Force might have been testing? Elise's mom suggested. You don't understand, Vivian, Tom objected. 
We're not talking about two people looking up in the night sky and thinking they saw a flying saucer. He waved his hand, palm up from side to side. No, no, it was huge in scope. The spacecraft, the life forms themselves filled the entire valley. Maneuvers then, she offered. Tom's eyes flashed. It wasn't experimental jets, and it wasn't maneuvers, he said tersely. Okay, okay, John mitigated. We know what you're saying, but please realize we're just trying to understand to help you if we can. Dad, said Elise, stretching across the table toward him, you can help us by believing what we're telling you is the truth and that it really did happen the way we're telling you. Her dad's sanguine complexion had paled over the past four hours. He was tired and perplexed. I hear you, he sighed, but you know that part of it doesn't really matter. The important thing is that your mother and I see how upset you both are, and we still love you, and we're going to support you in any way we can. Your father is right, dear, chimed Vivian. We don't know much about these things. Who can say what's possible or not? But you'll always have us here for you, no matter how things turn out. Thank you, said Elise, embracing Vivian and then her dad. I love you both so much. Tom stood. He shook John's hand, his disappointment palpable. One thing you said that I can't agree with, that it doesn't matter <clears throat> if it really happened or not. Well, it did happen, he said pointedly, and it does matter. Few words were exchanged during the short drive back to Upland to La Mirada, from Upland to La Mirada. Generally, both were pleased at John and Vivian's willingness to help and understand. But Tom remained vexed at what he knew deep inside was true. Elise's parents could not bring themselves to actually believe the events as they described them were true. Elise and Tom lay in bed sleeping soundly that morning, even as they sensed another presence in the room. That feeling of a stranger watching must have penetrated through to their subconscious because Elise began tossing agitatedly while Tom awakened momentarily to glance at the clock radio on the night table beside their bed. 2.38 a.m. In dreams, Elise imagined herself in a Sunday service with her mom in the familiar surroundings of their hometown church on San Antonio and Upland. Tom was locked in one of his proudest moments, a final minute interception, minute interception during the East-West Championship football game in 1986. All was as it should be for both, until the church singing stopped and the crowd's cheering came to an abrupt halt. Each of them stood, Elise in church, Tom in the stadium, watched. The churchgoer's eyes seemed cold and alien, and even her mother turned to study the strange creature beside her. Tom was patted on the back and congratulated the cheers of thousands at Bulldog Stadium, but now his teammates didn't know him, and the crowd became scientists staring at him as if he was a curiosity and not a person at all. And in the dreams and around them always were the eyes, eyes like he'd never seen before, studying, probing inside both their brains until their hearts were pounding and and their minds raced to the point of bursting. Together, they sat up in bed, their dream images suddenly merging into a reality of the dark, shadowy outlines that stood now at the edge of their bed. At that moment, it felt to them as if everything had stopped. Time, even the steady throbbing of their elevated heartbeats. Tom again glanced at the clock radio. Was he dreaming? 2.53 a.m. A scream rang out from the children's room where Tom Jr. and Zoe were sleeping. Elise was the first to enter. She flicked on the light instinctively. Since the inception of their trip to the Mojave, she had lived with the morbid fear that something horrible was about to happen to little Thomas. Now, she stopped at the entrance to the room with her husband watching in awe and horror as her child stood sound asleep in the center of the room spinning like a top. 
You sons of bitches, Elise wailed, running to him, then scooping him up in her arms. You think you can do anything you want, but you can't. Don't you dare touch our children. Leave my child alone. Already, Tom was beside her. It's okay. It's all right. He, he was saying as he guided them back toward the bed. Tom Jr., cradled in her arms, was only now beginning to awaken. Mommy, what's wrong? Nothing, dearest. Nothing. Everything is going to be fine, she soothed, laying him back in his bed, her heart still hammering. Now you just go back to sleep. Everything is fine now. Elise backed quietly away from him as his heavy eyelids dropped. She joined Tom, who stood watching from the doorway, then flicked the light off. But the moment she did, the boy left up suddenly in his bed. Don't turn off the light. What? But why? She asked, stunned. Because when you do, the little monsters come. She sighed. Thomas, there are no monsters. But there are, Mommy. There, there are, he insisted. They're short and ugly and they have red eyes. Tom and Elise left the children's room that morning, horrified to think that they were no longer safe, even in the environs of their own house. Barstow, California, May 4th, 1990, 1.30 p.m. Hi, everybody in the chat room. Tom sped his 1989 Honda Accord down I-5, headed for Barstow. The kids with their Uncle Glenn. This was the time he and Elise had set aside to meet with Wolfie and Carol and Tom was apprehensive. How would his parents react? What would they think of him afterward? He fretted. If in the end they didn't believe their story and thought he, he had lost his mind? The idea of telling Wolfie and Carol was risky, Tom reasoned, but what alternative did he have? Who, if not his own parents, would believe him after all? And these days, Tom knew he needed someone like Elise, someone like Elise had in John and Vivian with whom to share his feelings, to relieve the dizzying personal and business pressure that he'd been mounting daily. Elise sat beside him in the passenger seat, catching up on some badly needed sleep. Since the incident with Tom Jr., she felt heightened. She felt a heightened sense of vulnerability that, that bordered on paranoia. Every creak in the house, every shadow in the night, caused her to wonder if it was them that had caused it. Oddly, though, the insomnia and nightmares persisted for both of them. No tangible evidence of alien presence had revealed itself since February, but the terror remained. They lived with it, and it affected every moment of every day. The car phone sounded. Tom picked it up on the first ring. Yeah? Bob, how are you? He grimaced. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm behind. He shrugged. Hey, I'll get it to you, all right? No, absolutely not. But tomorrow, he promised. Okay, okay, Bob. Yeah, goodbye. Elise's eyes opened slowly. Who was that? Bob Jacobs. Elise frowned. I wish you wouldn't talk like that. Here you were here you are, just baptized and converted to the Mormon faith. He sighed. You're right, I'm sorry. I'm just so far behind on everything. He nibbled the cuticle of his index finger. I'm afraid I'm gonna lose my job, Elise. She patted his knee. It'll be good for you to see your dad. I hope so. Wolfie can be pretty cynical. You're his son. He'll believe you. Your parents didn't, he shot back. They wanted to. She pulled down the passenger visor, studying herself in the mirror. And if he wants proof, all he has to do is look at the circles around our eyes. Same dream? She nodded. They were around our bed again last night. Three of them. I could feel them. See them like they're shadows in the dark. I know, he mumbled somberly. I see them too, he said, turning off at the barstow exit. 
Are you going to tell them that part? Elise asked. How we believe we're being monitored? Tom blew out a blast of air from his lungs. I just don't know, he confessed. Earlier this morning, I wondered whether we should tell them at all. When they arrived at Tom's parents' house, Wolfie was already on the porch waiting. He walked down the three short steps into the driveway. To what do we owe the honor? Yes. I don't think I've seen either of you in three months. It's been a while, Tom agreed, nodding. The three of them entered the modest ranch-style home. Carol stood in the center of the living room, a couch and family portrait directly behind her. Want a beer? asked Wolfie. Tom declined. How about a nice glass of soda or wine for you? asked Carol, stepping towards Elise. No, thanks. Everyone looked nervous. It was Wolfie who spoke up. You know, I can probably save us all a lot of time. He gestured toward the sofa. But first, sit down. He watched as they did, then sat himself. I think I know why you're here. I don't get it, retorted Tom. Carol rushed to Wolfie's aid. What he means is, he gently placed his large hand, large hand over hers. I know what I mean, he argued. People are concerned about you two. You look like hell. No one sees you anymore, he calmed himself. Point is, that's why we talked to Elise's folks, and better yet, he hesitated, I think I might know the answer to your problem. What problem? Elise asked. UFOs, the extraterrestrials, all that, he stated directly. We're listening. Tom, you know there are quite a few military installations spread right around the area of the Mojave you were in, he began. 29 Palms, Fort Irwin, Nullis, and the Naval Ordnance Test Station. My first guess is that you two saw some experimental craft in operation. No, said Elise, definitely not. Wolfie held up his hand. Hold on, let me finish. There's another possibility, and that is you witnessed military maneuvers. Helicopters, de desert hovercraft, soldiers with night vision goggles that glow red in the night. He'd gotten their attention. There's a desert warfare training center in Fort Irwin. In a full-blown exercise, they might even use gas canisters. Remember, there's a lot of activity going on in the Gulf right now. Wolfie made his point. No, no, Tom objected. The type of aircraft we saw doesn't exist in any military, Wolfie. There was one craft. He tried to estimate 100 yards across. And the beings themselves, Elise interjected. Wolfie, they just weren't human. Anything else? Wolfie inquired. Yes. It's still go it still goes on. She became suddenly agitated. They're everywhere, watching us, monitoring every thought, every emotion. And we see them. Never really close up and clear like in the desert that night. But we see them. She squinted as she refined her thought, almost where we don't see them. Movement without anything being there. Shadows at the edge of our bed at night. And always these big, dark insect eyes. Elise stopped abruptly as if she had caught herself drifting beyond the outer fringes of sanity. We know what you mean, dear, said Carol, nodding politely. We understand. Wolfie sat back in his chair, shocked. At the conviction and level of intensity in Elise's voice. Then he spoke very softly. There's a last possibility that I should mention, he said reluctantly. It's not so unlike the last explanation, and I wouldn't mention it except that I once heard of a man who claimed he'd been part of a top-secret PSYOPs program in the mid-80s. A good, decent fellow, college graduate, Georgetown, I think, with a wife and two kids. He sat forward staring at Tom and Elise. When they got through with him, he had to be toilet trained because his mind had been reduced to a complete blank. Wolfie paused a moment to let his idea, idea settle. They got a bunch like that at Fort Irwin, Desert Training Center. He dropped back in his chair. Now I'd like you two to just think about that. Not a word was spoken for at least 30 seconds. So you're saying we may have run into one of these PSYOPs divisions, Tom surmised. 
and that we were drugged or gassed or whatever, then held captive by our own military while the maneuvers continued. Wolfie placed the palms of his two hands over his belly. That's what I'm saying. And if you're asking me to choose between monsters from outer space and drugs and war games, the war games will win every time. My sweet Jesus, gasped Carol, you don't think. Why not? said Wolfie. They've done it before, the bastards. Elise turned to Tom. That could explain the flashbacks. You've got to be kidding, Tom, Tom protested. You think I can't tell the difference between what we saw and guys wearing night vision goggles? He looked to Wolfie. And let me ask you this. If we were drugged and hallucinating, how is it possible for two people to hallucinate the exact same things at the exact same time? Wolfie gazed at his son, deadly serious. I don't know. But what I do know is that you two can't go on like this. He mentioned, he motioned to the outside through the living room plate glass. Look around you. It's spring out there. What happened to you was more than seven months ago. Try to relax. Enjoy the flowers and trees and your children. If things don't improve by summer, I suggest you both get some professional help. It was Elise who spoke up now in a steady cadence voice that bellied her emotions. I'm sure you're both worried about it, she, she said. But Tom's right. We saw them, we smelled them, we felt them around us, at exactly the same moment in exactly the same way. No, she reasoned, shaking her head from side to side. This was no military maneuver and it was no hallucination. In my heart, I know what we witnessed. And I know what we witnessed was not part of this world. Tom and Elise had a late lunch at his folks' house, then drove back home under the late afternoon sun. They picked up Tom Jr. and Zoe from Glenn's house, actually feeling better since their visit. Though they didn't believe Wolfie's theory, it was the most viable alternative they had come across. All right, guys, that's it till next week. And I will see you again at 6 p.m. Pacific. I'm going to leave the book. I'm going to leave this book right here. There we go. But I'll see you guys at 6 p.m. Pacific next week to finish to uh, do the next chat, the, the next hour's worth of reading. I'm glad you guys came. Tomorrow, of course, we'll be back here at 6:30 p.m. Pacific. And we're going to be talking with James C. James G. Stewart about his about his book of uh, let's see, mystery at the uh, Blue Sea Cabin, uh, Blue Sea Cottage, and it's an interesting book in that it takes place in the Jazz Age, but it's a true murder mystery story that he, this gentleman wrote. It's the first book he's ever written, so he'll be coming on the show tomorrow to talk to us about that. So I can't wait to talk to you guys tomorrow and see you guys. Let me put this down real quick. And uh, thank you for coming tonight. This book gets better and better. That's why I've been telling people that after reading this book, I've kind of questioned, you know, as a ghost hunter and hearing what people are telling me, you know, when we go out on these cases, it sounds a lot like these aliens. So I'm starting to question whether we're actually hunting ghosts or whether we're hunting, it might be, a, you know, extra, uh, extraterrestrials or something. So you'll see, because, yeah, this is, like I said, this is the scariest book I've ever read as far as the abduction goes. But anyway, thank you guys for coming. And I'm going to thank my sister again for the for the uh, Easter candy. Um, again, that uh, one today was unique. And that when I opened it, when, when I went to bite into it, it was soft on the middle. And I thought, well, there's something in there. So I poked at it. And there was a uh, a little yellow peep. Little, little yellow peep chick, which I'm going to keep, which I think is really, really cool in the middle of this chocolate egg. So that was cool. But anyway, I will see you guys tomorrow. Let me lean forward here. And... Uh, we're going to talk to James G. Stewart. So I'll see you guys tomorrow. Have a good day. Have a good rest of your weekend.